SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number one with guest Kalen Delaney. Welcome. Our guest this evening is Kaylin Delaney. Kaylin's been working with SQL Server since 1987 when she joined Sybase Corporation in Berkeley, California. Kaylin's worked for Sybase in the technical support department and then for five years with the training organisation. She was an independent trainer and consultant from 1992 until she helped create Solid Quality Learning, where she's now the CTO and a principal mentor. As a consultant, Callan's worked with both Microsoft and Sybase corporations to develop courses and to provide internal training for their technical support staff. She's taught Microsoft official curriculum courses as well as her own independently developed courses to clients throughout the world. In addition, she's been writing regularly about SQL Server since 1995. Her latest book, Inside SQL Server 2000, from Microsoft Press, was released in November 2000. Callan's also a contributing editor and columnist for the SQL Server magazine and has been a SQL Server MVP since 1995. So welcome, Caitlin. Well, thank you, Greg. That's great. When I uh, started doing uh, training with SQL Server, which we've seen many years ago now, because I, I do recall installing it from floppy disks, so that seems a while ago, but uh, at the time I joined the trainer group, uh, they have a private news group, and we had a lot of discussions, but the person they always asked all the tough questions to was Kaylin. So uh, she's clearly been around, uh, involved in this industry for a long time, and uh, what I thought I might get, she'd be the ideal guest to come along and talk about a bit of a history of the product and give us a feel for where the products come from. So if you could give us some ideas on uh, your, your own background and, and how you see uh, have seen the product develop over the years. Well, it's, it's been a lot of years, as, as Greg indicated in, in the um, biographical sketch there. Um, as, as you're probably aware, because of the, uh, the fact that I've worked with both Sybase and Microsoft, there is a common ancestry between the two products here. Sybase started in 84 as a company. Their first public product was released in early 87, and I joined the company right as that was just starting to hit the market, mid-87 when their first public release was there, which was version 3.0. And, and running on what platform? It, it ran on a number of platforms. Primarily, we did our work internally on, on Unix. It was developed on, on mm -hmm. Unix um, operating system, running on, you know, I can't even remember what hardware they were <laughs> yeah. running on back then. And also, the other big one was um, DEC VMS. Yes. was the other big one, but then over the next few years it expanded, it ran on Stratus machines, it ran on um, some early um, Solaris machines, was From one of the Sun, first, yes. the Sun Solaris machines. I know there were at least 10 or 12 different operating systems, some of which I never hear about at all. Oh, and IBM AIX was another one, um, and then as, as 
personal computers, smaller computers became more more prevalent. Um, that's when they started looking at porting the product onto a personal machine kind of operating system. Actually, even before PCs became real prevalent, I remember one one day somebody brought in a, a prototype of a Japanese computer that was like a a, a, a Sun um, workstation running Unix. But it was it was portable, and it had the Sybase database engine running on it. And I remember thinking that this was the coolest thing I had ever seen. That I could I could pick up this machine and take it home with me and have my very own Sybase data engine running at home if I wanted that. And and I had no idea what was coming down the the tracks. And in just a few years after that, but I I saw that as a real breakthrough that people could just take this database engine wherever they were and do whatever they needed to do with it. And so what was your first exposure to Microsoft then? Well, um, Sybase and Microsoft formed a partnership that I really wasn't involved in those initial mm. negotiations. I first found out about it when they started um, bringing some, some personal computers into the technical support area and loading in this... Um, OS2 operating system that that was the first I'd ever heard of that operating system was when we had these personal computers in our labs and and then this version of SQL Server that was running on these PCs that seemed similar but different and I I'd heard about Microsoft just from from a programming language I'd heard of Microsoft Basic was about the only thing I'd heard about Microsoft up till that point we weren't in the Seattle area we were down in the the San Francisco Bay area. So it, it, they weren't a big company back then, and this was like 88, yeah, 89. Yeah, so 89. And so I hadn't really heard much about them, but here was this thing that looked very much like the Sybase data engine running on a whole different kind of machine. Mm -hmm. And we got to play around with it. We even ran through some tests. We did some test installations, and, and yes, we, we installed off a of floppy disk. We installed OS2 off a of floppy, floppy disk, disk also. Well, yes. In fact, when you bought um, SQL Server, my, the first version of Microsoft SQL Server in the box, it also came with all the floppy disks to install OS2 also. And I, I kept that for a long time until we moved to, to a house where we just had no storage space. Yeah. But I was I was trying to keep my box of, of all these floppies just, just for historical reasons. Yes, but, yes. I, I had a stack of them that was uh, about uh, a foot and a half yeah, high. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm not sure, I can't remember what I did with it, but we had this massive cleaning to get rid of anything we didn't really need, and that, that went. Yeah. So we, We've had similar things in our own office in recent uh, recent years. I had uh, I still have some people uh, in the company I used to work for that trying to get them to uh, get rid of the five and a quarter inch floppy disks. Uh, oh, for example, they, is, have is, is they have a great attachment. Those. That's it. They, they don't even have a disk drive that'll read them, but they have a great attachment to the disks. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, but when my kids were first using computers, they thought that the five and a, a quarter were those were what were floppy disks because they were sort of <laughs> softer. And they, for a while, they were calling the, the the three and a half inch. They were calling those the hard disks because they were hard. Where the eight-inch ones were even floppier. Yeah. Oh, I don't think I ever used them, but I remember seeing them. Yeah. Yes, I, I also recall them being very noisy. <laughs> That's the yeah. other thing. 
Well, things change. Mm. So, so Microsoft and Sybase were, were in partnership for a while, where Microsoft was, was developing the, the engine. At that time, the, the agreement was Microsoft would develop it for PC-based operating systems, and Sybase still kept the, the non-PC-based operating systems, or the, um, what they were considering the, for bigger companies, as opposed to the, the they were talking enterprise at that point, but they were just talking about the bigger installations yeah. as opposed Where they to... Where they saw the Microsoft one as the small installation. Right, for, so. for a few people, for a small office, and because it was just PCs. And yes. at that point, although they could see that the database engine might grow, they were not looking at the fact that the, the hardware was going to evolve, so what we are calling PCs now can, can run an enterprise, yes. and it's still... It's still a PC, but it's got you know how how many terabytes of storage and how many CPUs and uh, you know how many dozens of gigabytes of RAM. But oh, it's a PC. Yes, in, in fact, I often tell people there's uh, a great video on the channel9.msdn.com site at the moment where uh, Ewan Garden takes people for a tour through the product group in in the SQL Server area, and they show one of the HP Megadome machines they've got, which has got something like 64, 64-bit processors. Oh, right. And, right. and a couple of terabytes of RAM and thousands of disk drives or something. And yeah, I, was, I suppose it's a PC. <laughs> well, it's, it's, if it's made by the PC manufacturer and their right. PC line. So, so after the first couple of versions, it, it became obvious that there was some fuzziness in the agreement there that if Microsoft still just kept writing for PC-based operating systems, there would definitely be some overlap in the market as yeah. who Sybase was trying to serve and who Microsoft was trying to serve. And what the actual politics of that was, I, I don't want to get into that, and whether everybody knew what they were getting into, whether there was anything underhanded, that wasn't my department. I know the agreement was Microsoft would handle the PCs, and as the PCs grew, then then Microsoft's market share and the world of possibilities for Microsoft just grew along with it. And for a while, even after I left Sybase and went independent, um, I, I worked with both products still. My first big assignment was to go back to Sybase and develop training and train their technical support staff. And I was starting to work with the Microsoft um, people in the Seattle area and, and trying to do both for a while because they were still very, very similar at that point, which was 91, 92. But then as the products started to diverge around um, Microsoft, uh, the 6.0 version was the first big departure. Sybase version 10, Microsoft. What, what were the essential differences in 6.0? Oh, um, okay, you stumped me on that. Yeah, one. that's okay. <laughs> um, well, they were just just starting to diverge. They, mm. There weren't any real major differences architecturally. They were they were still very similar in the way that that memory was managed, configure memory and pieces of memory then pre-allocated to different purposes. Pages were still 2K. The locking metaphors were still exactly the same, the isolation levels. It was just starting to have different syntax, slightly different possibilities. They would each add new things without um, consulting the other. I think yes. the, the only major difference that I can think of 
offhand is the introduction of replication into the, the Microsoft product, where Sybase added a replication engine, which was a completely separate product. Microsoft built it in. So if you bought Microsoft SQL Server, you got replication along with it. Sybase, it was this add-on product that was so difficult to use that if you bought the replication engine from Sybase, you had to also buy two weeks worth of training and consulting because you, there was nothing you could do with it out of the box. You had to have an expert in there to get you up and running with it. And But it was still... Even the replication, I thought, in SQL Server 6.5 even was still at it, times challenging. It wasn't ready for, for <laughs> enterprise yet, but a whole lot of the product wasn't. But if you were doing basic transactional replication and weren't trying to do anything fancy from one publisher and a handful of subscribers, you could get that going pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, I used to find if uh, we were teaching any of the admin classes at that stage, you could usually tell which students could follow instructions and which ones couldn't because they were the ones who got if the you, replication. If you could lab follow working. instructions, you could get it working. Yes, yeah. if you tried to do anything fancy or didn't follow the directions exactly, then, then exactly mm. it would be when you'd have problems. My my feeling on the product at the time, I must admit, I I used to think it required a lot more hands-on management than, than other database products I'd worked with at the time. And and uh, that's one of the things I kind of liked when they moved to 7 is that they seemed to address most of the reasons why people would need to constantly manage a server, I suppose. That's that's probably the feeling I had about it at the time. Um, we, we I found that uh, a lot of the tuning and things like that they put in I think also just the idea of the the fact that the uh, the disk files could just grow automatically and uh, you didn't in seven zero yeah yes, by the yes. time we got to seven zero yeah yeah there were the big changes were were in seven zero and mm. in fact when when six five um, was released when so many of the that what had been difficult features became much more easily managed. They introduced the, the precursor of the Enterprise Manager. It was a very nice graphical interface. Internally, the product was similar between 6 and 6.5, but they introduced a whole bunch more graphical tools to make it much easier to manage, starting on the move to the 7.0 ease of management. Uh, but um, around the time of 6.5, I, I reached a point um, professionally where I realized I was going to have to take, make a choice between the Microsoft product line and the Sybase. I knew that they were going to be diverging and I knew if I wanted to maintain a, an edge of expertise I really just needed to focus on one or the other. And and I spent a, a little time um, exploring, really trying to be honest and, and evaluating what the pros and cons of going each direction would be. Um, it, it had helped that we moved up into the Seattle area so I was closer to the Microsoft engineers. But Microsoft just made it so much easier to be an independent working with the product. The, the early versions of, of, or the precursor to MSDN and TechNet that gave you tools that you needed right in your own hand, development versions, um, workshops that they held that they invited people to. It was just so much easier to get my hands on the tools that I needed without you know, paying uh, a month's salary to get them. Yeah. I just really appreciated how Microsoft was making their, their products available to, to other people to go out and spread the word. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it became a pretty obvious choice after I studied what the options were. And so the move to 7, obviously a very significant move in the product. It, it was a real traumatic move in a way for me because in the 6-5 time frame, I actually thought I was an expert. 
I really thought I knew everything about that product in the 6-5 time frame and well this is great I could I can just rest on my laurels I can start exploring other areas and then and then they came out with 7-0 and I realized I had to go back to school I was back on square one I had a head start because I got a, a big project to develop internal training at Microsoft for their tech support people to to upgrade to 7.0. So while the product was still in early beta, I got my hands on it. I got to work with the engineers as I, I'm writing this courseware. So I had a head start, but it was everything was back to, to the beginning again. All the engine stuff, which is what I work with, the way the, the data is organized and stored on disk, the way the indexes are organized and used to access the data, the optimizer, what gets what plans are stored, how and where they're stored, when recompilation takes place, how to tune your queries, everything was different. So except for the SQL language, it, it almost seemed like a brand new product. One one thing that pretty much stayed the same was still the the, the locking paradigm still stayed the same. Mm -hmm. We um, Except for Marty, we did have row-level row locking, yeah. but the way that locks and transactions were related to each other still stayed the same, and that still stayed different than than a lot of the other products that didn't start from the same roots. But what yeah. um, I must admit, uh, I remember a while back I read the ebook you had on locking. Right. Which uh, we, we must another day to come back and talk about locking. I think that, that would that make would it a good. very that, interesting that discussion. That certainly is worth a, a whole a whole talk <laughs> on itself. That's good. And the move to 2000 then. Um, you know, originally 2000 was just seen as a uh, a 7.5, just like we had six and yeah. 6.5, we had seven, and then there was going to be a 7.5. It was not drastic as far as me writing my books. I had barely finished the the 70 book inside SQL Server inside 70, SQL 70 yeah. and I just basically got enough time to catch my breath before it was time to start writing the 2000 book. It was that fast, and it. It, I know there was a lot of internal debate over whether to give it a whole new version number or not, and there were some specific changes, some specific new features that internally they decided it warranted being a whole new number, and and I was not involved in all of those decisions, and right now I can't even remember what they all were, but I know it was close to just being yeah. a 7.5. I, I must admit, yeah, the discussions I had seen at the time, I, I was expecting a 7.5, and I was quite surprised when when they gave it a new thing yeah, there were i think it was also the special things that made it a yeah, new version it was, it was also the years where they started naming things after the years as well right, so right yeah. and it might have that might have been part of it they just yeah, wanted so a windows brand new name. 2000 yeah and so on yeah. one one of the new features though at that point was the um, indexed views mm. and the do you uh, see that widely adopted uh, I, I think because from memory it's only uh, in the enterprise edition well it's that's a, that's a fuzzy area um, mm. what's only in enterprise is this magical behavior of the optimizer that you can write a query and never even reference the index view and the mm. optimizer will say oh this sounds familiar oh look at this I've got an index view with your answer already prepared mm. that it can go and find that you've stored this information in a view with an index on it when you never refer to the view in, sub, in um, standard edition you can directly access an indexed view. Mm. Um, you do need to use a particular hint called with no expand to say don't expand this view into its underlying tables and underlying select statement. 
but you can select from your index view and use it in standard edition. Yeah. So you can get the performance benefit, but you have to know the view is there. I suppose 2000, your verdict on it, obviously it's been very stable uh, since it since it was released. Uh, just given the fact, I think it shipped late 99 from memory. Actually, I think it was, uh, um, must have been very close to, um, I, I, I had this recollection, I thought it was just prior to, two, it may, may be that that's just when we actually had... Uh, uh, conferences and things like that yeah, just no, prior to its release. Yeah, no, I think it was 2000. But, uh, I'm mm, remembering... It may have been the early months of 2000 August or something two, like that. August 2000, I actually, I'm remembering mm. uh, the release party at Microsoft. Oh, okay. Well, that's a, that's a date to know, remember. But, you know, it might so, have yeah. been August 99, but, but I'm pretty sure it was 2000. Yeah. It was, it was the year of the name, so... Mm. That's yeah, good. It, yeah, it, did, it didn't seem to drag on through the because year. Because <laughs> I think it was April 99 when my SQL 7 book was done. Okay. So it was just it was just a little over a year later that but this is long ago and, and That's right. It's now seems long might ago. My fading here. A lot <laughs> yeah. of years now and uh, now a whole brand new book to work yeah. on. <laughs> do you do you think the um, the fact that they haven't released product in the meantime has cost in terms of market share or things like that, uh, uh, just given the fact that, I mean, it is in this industry now a long time. You know, that that's not an area that I'm looking at all the time, but from the, the customers that I work with, I, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to, to, especially with a product like this, to have it be really obvious that it's been around, that it's stable. They are introducing the service packs for it. There's a lot of expertise out there about it. And I know when when 2000 was right on the heels of 7.0, that actually was, was sort of a negative thing. Yeah. And for As far as sales would go, I would have thought a 7.5 would have been better. It wouldn't have shocked people that mm-hmm. here's this whole new version you got to now go out and spend your money on. Yeah. That was a little things fast. like stability are exactly what you're looking for in this part of the market. So the fact that it's been out for so long, that there's so much expertise now out there, that the product is is known and known to be stable and is running some incredible applications out there, I don't think is a bad thing at all. Yeah. But no. but yeah, it has been five years now, so so now it's time for a, for a new version. Mm, indeed. And so o- over that period, uh, you generated a second version of the book. So you had the Inside SQL Server 2000 um, version of the book came right. out as well. Right. And then because there wasn't a new version of that, then I, I wrote the, the e-book on locking that you mentioned, which, mm. which does overlap with the Inside book quite a bit as far as this is the way that locking works. These are the types of locks SQL Server supports. But the e-book... Um, has some things that I learned since the time that the 2000 book was written. I'm always learning new things. I don't just write the book and then go off and, and sit on my sailboat. I I keep playing with the product and keep learning new things and, and troubleshooting and teaching classes. And so there's, there's things that I learned since the product came out, and there's a lot more hands-on. It's a get your hands on it and look at how this kind of a lock can be generated, uh, scripts to run to see this occurring or that occurring and this kind of blocking situation arising. So mm-hmm. it's it's much more intended to be hands-on and even deeper than the than the yeah. inside book. The the thing that the thing that impressed me actually one of the key things was just act, uh, actually how open I found Microsoft were with details of how the product worked and uh, 
Uh, I, I recall, for example, um, about the time the product came out, I remember Jeff Clark at our local Microsoft office uh, before our local user group meetings would sit there and put on net shows where we would sit there and watch a lot of details uh, from it. And, and I recall there, were, there was something like 40 hours of net shows on just how the query optimizer worked, for example. And uh, I remember sitting there, I won't say bored, but I mean, it was very uh, long Some and tedious. Very, um, very deep, yeah. But uh, I was also torn between just being almost completely in awe of how, how they oh, came yeah. up with some of the schemes. So. Yeah, I've, and there's actually there's there's even more hours of that for for the next version of the product, and a lot of it is available to the early beta adopters. You can get um, webcasts now downloadable or with the resource kits that that give you lots of lots of juicy details. Very good. And so maybe after the break, we might then continue and we'll talk about the next version of the product. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Well, welcome back from the break. Uh, we do need to move on then, probably, and talk about the new product. Uh, I, I think one of the things that most amazed me about it is just how many things have been enhanced or changed. I, I have... Uh, a slide uh, in a PowerPoint presentation that I've used a couple of times around the country now, and I, I quite like it because it, it's almost every every tiny little part of the entire slide is covered with the the detail of some new feature. Right, that's in, in like six point in, in, in type tiny or little something. Type. Yeah, I've, yes. I've got a, uh, a, a, a mate, uh, Glenn Miller, who's a PowerPoint MVP, and I'm I'm sure he would tell me that's the worst PowerPoint slide ever created. And, uh, but I just love having it there because well, it, it, yeah, it depends it, it on what your purpose is. If you want people to learn and remember what's on there, but I don't think that's the point. I think I know what slides you're talking about, and no, you just want to you want to overwhelm someone. That's the point of the slide, and I think it does that. <laughs> it does indeed. So your thoughts on the next version of the product? Excited about it? I, I of course I'm really really excited about it. There's some new things that are going to be are, are getting my my blood flowing again. Things that that I I take a look at and I just want to stop and go play with them for a few hours or a few days. Um, I'm working on a white paper on the concurrency enhancements and I'll, I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. But one of the nice things I think is that the, the real guts of the engine have not changed like they did between 6.5 and 7. Mm -hmm. So the upgrade path is going to be much less painful than it was but the the amount of change in the product is just as big. Many of the existing features were enhanced, many, many, many new features, but your existing applications should be much more easily portable. Yeah. Many of them will, will just work under the new version as you start to explore what you can add to it and the way you can make them even better. Yeah, I found in the, in the groups that I deal with the um, areas, particularly like the ADO groups and people like that, I've been very, very impressed by their 
commitment to making sure that things still work the way they work. Oh, the groups at Microsoft, yeah. you mean? Absolutely. 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 Uh, in fact, some of the things, uh, I look at uh, things like remoting formats for data sets and things like that in the ADO area, and uh, the changes they've made almost could, be, could have been considered bug fixes in, in one or two areas, but they've, they've maintained the existing behaviour just in case someone is depending upon the existing behaviour and enhanced it in a different way. So I, I just see that in everywhere from the ADO end right through the whole SQL end. I, I just see a, a, a super commitment there's, to making there's sure. There's very few things that just won't work. In mm. fact, I haven't found any that just plain won't work. There's some that might be a little more awkward, but most most will most 2,000 applications will will be upgradable and runnable. Yeah, I think the only thing I've I've come across is probably in the security area. Uh, I've found some things that weren't good things before that uh, I'd say now they probably fix. The, the the fact that catalog views, if you were depending upon having users be able to see all the objects even if they don't have permissions to them and things like that, well, yes, that isn't going to work the, anymore. This ab absolutely. Yeah. The, the security model That's is, a good is thing. much more secure <laughs> out of the box. So if you had built your application assuming that security was loose, that that might be something that doesn't work. Yeah. But then you can, as an administrator, go in and, and grant whatever permissions. They're not enabled by default, but certainly you can go in and enable them if you want, and then you won't have to change your application. But you can just enable whatever features you need your application users to have ability to, and and then they'll be able to. to yeah, I, I think security is the only sort of area I've seen where. Potentially, uh, there are some things that you might have to do. Uh, I think things like SQL Server logins, for example, the fact that uh, previously they were they were kind of treating them as deprecated and they kept using words like fall backwards compatibility only and all those sort of words. And, and now they've uh, dealt with the fact they're going to be around for quite a while and, and they've really fixed they pretty much all the them. issues. Yeah, yeah. The password enforcement, mm -hmm. the, you can set password policy and expiration on on SQL logins, just like has always been available in Windows for the Windows logins that you use. Yeah. So I think the fact they've tightened that up, again, it's the sort of thing that the default behavior now is actually a tighter behavior right. than what right. was there before. So if you were dependent upon the looser behavior, that's the, the only sort of areas I've seen where you might have to change things. Right, yeah. but, you, but, but my point is that you don't have to change the application. That's An right. administrator could go in and just open up some, some security yes. um, <laughs> holes and well, the make The preference will be to fix the app. Yeah. Right, to not depend on that, but if you want your app to run, it can by making other changes behind the scenes. Yeah. So what are you most excited about with the product? Oh, this this is a real tough question. In fact, I just got back from from two weeks of giving keynotes in the, for the Microsoft Great Lakes District, um, four cities, three in Ohio, and then Detroit, Michigan, which is right across the border. Um, a, a keynote address on my favorite new features, and it was it was not only was it really really difficult to just come up with a short list of favorite new features, but then as I'm preparing my examples, I would read something about one of the things I was looking at, and then do a hyperlink through books online to something else, and read about another feature that I hadn't heard about yet, and oh wait a minute, but this one's really good, and then jump to somewhere else, and and even after I'd come up with my list of top ten to try. To, to keep it down to that as I was developing my presentations was, was really difficult. So I actually cheated on a few. I, I would say one of my top ten features is 
um, enhancements to the security model, and then I had like five sub bullets under there. So yeah, it's just one thing, but there were five areas within security that that I thought were really, really changes for the better. Things like um, the secure, security of the metadata, the password policy enforcement. Um, we can have triggers on data definition statements, triggers on DDL. That's what I'm really so excited about. This has been about. a question, a frequently um, requested feature to be able to react when someone creates or drops an object. and. We, we could actually create triggers on system tables in 7.0, but they just wouldn't fire if you did a create table because really SQL Server didn't do an insert into the system table behind the scenes. SQL 2000 basically just told you, no, you cannot create triggers on system tables. And so what do you do? You want to know every time somebody creates a table. You want to know every time somebody drops a table. Now there are specific triggers. Create a trigger for alter table. Create a trigger for um, drop a view so you can Actually, my, my, one of my favorites is, is the DDL all event. Uh, for, for, for two reasons. One is uh, I'm sure I'm not the only person in the world who uh, has uh, run scripts against the master database when they meant to be running it against some other database. And the script has to drop <laughs> table in it. And so what, I, what I'm now able to build is an EDL trigger that just basically says in the master database, if you're not altering the trigger, just roll back. And uh, it completely protects all my master database right, from running DDL. Right. That's just stunning. <laughs> I, I love it. Oh, so just creating like uh, demo scripts, but doing it in master instead of your, yes. your test database. Many Absolutely. times I, I yes. just load a script up, forget to change the database, and, yes. and run it in master, yes. and uh, you, you then otherwise sit there trying to weed out all the objects and get, get it back the way it was. Well, one That's hint great. about that is there is a use statement that you can yes, put in yes, any yes, number yes, of scripts, yes, and, yes. and I've learned the hard way to always <laughs> always just go and check for, for a use statement in my script, even if I think I'm already going to be there, it doesn't hurt to run a use if you're already DDL there. triggers, let, let me fix that now in a flash. <laughs> it's great. The the other uh, thing I think they're wonderful for is things like auditing. The fact I can now build an audit table. Much cheaper and, and, and much more specifically. Changes. Whatever you want to know about changes that people are making, it's much more straightforward and, and not nearly as expensive as having to do it, having to either turn on the full auditing capability or even to write your own trace to do that, which was a little indirect. Yeah. This is a direct way to just know when something's happened. One, one I did ask the product group about, though, is I'd like to be able to change the data in the trigger. And uh, at the moment, the event data is a read-only thing that you get that tells you what was in there. But uh, uh, they said that's a little tough. Uh, but uh, alternately, uh, I talked to them about maybe giving us an instead of trigger. Instead, as oh, a DDL for the trigger, DDL triggers, which yes. you can see, I, I'm starting to realise it'd be kind of nice that you could use it for uh, things like I could type create proc and I could have it then tidy up uh, the formatting before it stores it in the database or things like that. Uh, oh, just actually, all sorts of change things. the trigger mm, itself. So, uh, oh. <laughs> so anyway, they, they've taken that one on advisement, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think it just occurred to me that in other triggers you can change the data. Uh, during the trigger, but the DDL ones you currently can't, and uh, I thought that would be a nice enhancement. Uh, I think also if you if you want to be, uh, it, it will allow for a type of enforcement that would be considered bizarre before. I mean, you could now enforce naming conventions, for example. There you go. Okay, <laughs> interesting. So 
So you've made a strong business case to Microsoft. They will respond <laughs> if you have a, a very strong business case for your request. <laughs> so, so what else do you like to look at in the new version? Well, not just the security on the metadata, but but all the new metadata that's out there. Mm. The um, the dynamic metadata is is, yeah. is going to just be awesome. The dynamic management. Um, objects uh, come in, in two categories. We have dynamic, ma dynamic management views, and we've also got a couple of dynamic management functions. But we, the table valued functions, so both the views and the functions are treated as if they were a table, but they give us data that up to this point was never available except in some uh, undocumented, obscure, hard to use DBCC commands, now they're available as a table so we can filter them, we can save them, we can inspect them using where clauses, whatever we need to do with them. We've got um, dynamic management objects to tell us all of the, the active transactions, all of the block transactions, all of the, the long-running queries. A lot of this was available in sysprocesses before, but not nearly as friendly, not nearly as extensive. My absolute favorite um, as soon as I get some real high-powered queries and applications running to start looking at this metadata are the dynamic um, functions which will show us index usage. Yes, a big, that's big hole in the product up to this point that I have wished I had since mm. the earliest version. A lot of the consulting that I go and do is already running applications where I'm just called in to fix things that are broke. Mm -hmm. This query is running abysmally. How yes. do we fix it? And I look and see, oh, well, your critical tables have 30 indexes on them. <laughs> this is why updates and indexes are taking so long. Every one of those indexes must be updated. But I know we don't need all of them, but which ones do we get rid of? How can you tell which indexes are used and which aren't? The, 7 and 2000 introduced the, the index tuning wizard, which does allow us to um, give us a report of which indexes are used in a workload that we supply to it. But if our workload doesn't cover everything, the, the function isn't going to return useful information yeah. to us. It, the, the new dynamic management views aren't perfect, but because they're managed internally, they're much more direct. And there, there, is, there will be this function that can, for any index which is still in cache, can tell us how often it's been scanned, how often we've done a seek through it, how often we've updated it, and nothing like this has been available. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to use that in, to using that in some real, real testing situations. Yes, actually, I attended uh, two indexing sessions that Kim Tripp ran at uh, the past in conference Munich, in Munich yes, yes. two weeks ago, and uh, she was showing a whole lot of things on index usage with the dynamic management views, and yeah, completely stunning. Excellent, excellent material. What's your thoughts on the execute as uh, for setting an execution context as to whether it's a good or bad idea or I, I procedures? I see that as another, another security um, feature to be able to have a much tighter control over over the context that you're running a stored procedure in. And so I, I, I lump it in with the security changes, which in general I think are a real good thing. Um, I haven't done a whole lot of testing with that so far. Um, I know it's going it, to, it'll be um, replacing, um, 
if you use it well, it will be able to replace this concept of, of chaining that had to be enabled, was a little bit awkward to use in SQL 2000 in Service Pack 3. Yeah. They added this cross I think cross ownership chaining as a whole has been a, a difficult concept for a lot of people. And, and it hasn't always worked right. It hasn't been, it's been misdocumented in a lot of situations, which made it more difficult to use if the documentation doesn't even tell you really what's going on with it. And Actually, it's a good point. We should point out to people that they should uh, always go and download the latest copies of Books Online because well, this, it's Yeah, this is something that's actually new, that change. Books Online has been updated along with most service packs mm. so that you can get an updated set of documentation. Um, I noticed there was a discussion recently about uh, indexing bit fields, for example, or bit columns, and uh, what was interesting is at the point the product was released, the documentation still said you can't build an index on bit columns, but in the up but you could. But in the updated, updated books, books online, online, it now shows that. Yeah, yeah the, the so. updated books online don't come with the service packs, but they are available free for download mm. from the Microsoft website. So that's something needs to be yeah. on your your regular to-do to -do list. list. Yes, yes they yes. need an RSS feed or a blog feed or something. Or so just yes, we'll work some, on it. Some <laughs> big big skywriting saying down new books <laughs> online available. <laughs> that's good. The, uh, so apart from security, other features? Um, other features, um, that, well, the dynamic management views are, are a wonderful thing. And then a big piece that, that covers a lot of different aspects of the product, both old features and enhanced uh, enhancements to old features and some new features, is an underlying technology called row-level versioning. Mm -hmm. This allows support for a new feature called snapshot isolation, which gives us some new ways to control concurrency without using locking. Usually people, including myself, lump this in with locking, but it's really an alternative to locking mm -hmm. to maintain an older version of the rows so that you can get at data without having to lock or be blocked by locks mm -hmm. that somebody else yeah. Is holding. In general, this is to avoid readers blocking writers. To avoid readers being blocked by writers, and also if you're running in a high isolation level, the readers won't block writers. Mm -hmm. You still, though, have a potential of writers blocking writers. So the downsides of this new snapshot isolation are if you do have the situation of two writers concurrently, Instead of just one blocking the other, you're not using locking anymore. If you have two writers trying to write the same data, you'll end up with one of them receiving an error message and being kicked out. So that needs to be tested for in the application layer. The other downside is once you've enabled this snapshot isolation, whether or not you're using it, you just enable it and say, well, I want to be able to use it if somebody needs it. As soon as you've enabled that possibility, Every process doing updates stores the old versions of their rows and then will bear the overhead every update, whether or not anybody wants these special non-blocking reads and writes, mm. will we'll have to, to store the older version and take up space in TempDB where the old versions are stored and the extra overhead of, of writing these old versions. Mm. 
And it's been implemented as another transaction isolation level. Right. It's actually a whole new isolation level. And then there's also a just a different flavor of the existing read committed isolation level. It's a big topic. Not only could I talk about locking in general for hours and hours, this new snapshot isolation and all of its permutations, I could probably talk for a long time on. It's built upon this technology called row-level versioning, which SQL Server provides now to be able to store the older versions. And that technology now also comes in in other areas. Um, there's a new feature which allows indexes to be built completely online, including clustered indexes. They use the, the row-level versioning to allow us to do that, that you can be updating an index while it's being rebuilt because the changes are, are versioned. Um, the old features, um, triggers now are built, have been completely re-engineered. They look and act the same, except they are built now upon the row-level versioning. The, the inserted and deleted tables will be these older versions of the rows that are now stored in TempDB. And the other feature that uses row-level versioning is, is another new feature called um, multiple active result sets. And it's more of a client-side issue, so I'm not even going to really go into the details, but just this row-level versioning is now the underlying structure that a whole bunch of features are, are built upon. That's a point I wanted to make. Yeah. In fact, some of the discussion I've seen with that uh, tends to usually use that uh, O Oracle type word, and uh, <laughs> the one we don't usually mention. But... Uh, it's different to how they've implemented it in Oracle, but I get the impression a lot of people feel this will ease the migration. Uh, Absolutely. Oracle. That's one of the reasons is, is to make migration a little bit easier, but also um, in those cases where you've got some heavy um, critical read operations that need to get done and in the current versions, if those end up being uh, delayed because of blocking, that's, that's a situation running... Um, running big reports or um, building cubes in a, an analysis services situation. If you've got to do heavy reads in order to build cubes, you don't want to have to have to wait for someone else's locks while you're doing this massive um, read and analysis operation. So the, the snapshot isolation can be a big help for your analysis services. Yeah, I do get the impression from a lot of uh, enterprise customers that they think uh, Microsoft is now better understanding uh, the, the sort of the higher end needs of, uh, in particular, things like the fact you can rebuild indexes without taking the system down for for great lengths of time and things like that. There there does seem to be quite a push for increased availability, uh, which on big systems has been a, a, a big difficulty. Well, I, I know I hear this a lot that that especially people coming from other products are are claiming that that Microsoft wasn't able to handle um, the enterprise or handle real real applications before. But if you look at, at some of the case studies Microsoft has done, it, I don't think that was true. There, right. for, for many, many versions, there have been major applications running 24-7, servicing thousands of concurrent customers um, that are, have been using whatever the, the current version of SQL mm -hmm. Server was. So if you're willing to learn how SQL Server works and not 
expect it to work like some other product that you were using before, you could get it to do anything. And this is what I've always seen my job as being. I, I teach people how SQL Server works so you can take advantage of every little detail of it. I don't try to convince people to switch to Microsoft from some other product. I take people who are already using the Microsoft product and want to use it the best way they can and to get the most out of it, and I teach them exactly the way that it works so they can yeah. use it. Yeah, I think it, I think it is a, a good. It's an interesting misconception because I know uh, I saw a slide uh, some years back where they were talking about the largest websites in the world, and uh, they tend to point at places like Amazon and say, "Yeah, yeah, that's that's not a Microsoft one." But the thing they they never seem to discuss is that I, I saw a list of the top 16, and a significant number of those were were running SQL Server Absolutely. today. Absolutely, there are some of the biggest applications, the most users, the most data, the the highest throughput using Microsoft SQL Server. So it's it has been available for these kinds of applications, but there is a, a learning curve, there is a, a pain point of making the transition. So I think some of these features are just to to ease ease the minds of people mm -hmm. making the transition. Not that it couldn't be done before, but it yeah. just makes it a little bit easier to see what's on the other side as as you're making that change. Did database mirroring make your list of top favorite um, things? Or? Not mirroring so much, um, but database snapshots, snapshots. which work mm -hmm. really well with mirroring. And, and so, so we could sort of put mirroring as one of these sub-bullets. I, I talked about snapshots in my top ten list, but it, it plays so nice with mirroring that, that you could get mirroring in there also. Snapshot is, is much broader, encompasses a lot more possibility than just the mirroring. You can, you can do a, a, a regular snapshot of your database just to have a historical record of what, what the database was like each week or each month. Just take a snapshot. The, the beauty of the snapshots is that it's instant instantaneous because it doesn't copy any data at the time you make the snapshot. And the way that it works, it plays nice with mirroring is that um, mirroring does keep two simultaneous copies of a database. The second copy normally isn't accessible, but you can make a snapshot of a mirror and then you can access that snapshot. So it, it, the snapshot is what makes mirroring even more powerful. Yeah, I must admit, I've seen mirroring almost seems a bit like now fault tolerance for the masses. Right. Well, yeah, just like just like fault tolerance is not intended to be uh, is is only an availability tool. It's not a performance or a scalability tool. Um, data mirroring and clustering both fit that category. They're for availability only. But once you add the snapshots onto mirroring, then it becomes a performance tool and an. Uh, uh, availability yeah. tool. I mean, a, a scalability of, tool. Excuse me. I see a lot of people excited about mirroring because it looks uh, as though it's going to be in the standard edition of the product. Where uh, previously, to do things like clustering, you needed to be on the enterprise level uh, issue. Uh, plus, also the fact that it uh, allows the possibility of having uh, the complete systems in totally different buildings because uh, there, there's no shared. Hardware Share, right, the data is not shared. Uh, I, I don't think we want to get people's hopes up too much about what's in the different editions because traditionally that's been one of the last things that Absolutely. they've decided upon. <laughs> the, the index views that we were talking about a little bit earlier, it, that was not decided until probably just a few weeks before they, they froze the final bits. 
Yes, I know and many of us are still lobbying them about uh, certain aspects of the product that we won't discuss today, but as to what might be in which right, versions. Right, right. Yeah. So, so the jury's still out. You can still, mm. you know, submit your vote, <laughs> and whether or not it's listened to, we certainly can't say here. Mm. But the the decision of what's going to be in standard, what's going to be enterprise, will is is postponed. So database snapshots, and so these use NTFS sparse files. I noticed uh, so that uh, if you create a snapshot of a 500 meg database, you get a 500 meg sparse file. It's, it's uh, if you look in Enterprise, uh, sorry, in Explorer, you get to see size of the file is 500 meg, but size on disk might be 100k, something like that. So it, uh, it right, you so you can really see what file. it is that you're getting, yeah, and and by looking at the the time to create it. Or the time to query it—it it's, it, it is the original data until you start making changes, and then then the, the snapshot starts to get actually data in it yeah. as the source is changing. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one because I know I've dealt with a lot of applications over the years where people have worried about, uh, say, end of period processing or things like that, and they're. All, they endlessly try and make their system so that not too much work has to be done at the end of a period, but invariably that has meant that after the end of the period they're, they're working how to report backwards to what the situation looked like at the end of the period, and the beauty of this means they can now just create a snapshot and report on it for Whenever weeks. Whenever they want to, yeah. absolutely. And uh, also possibly for recovering data. You can um, right. You can recover, copy data from the snapshot back into um, another database someplace, or or just use that snapshot as as your source of operations at any point mm. that you want. And it's a read-only. Right. It will be read yes. as long as it is officially a snapshot. It will be read-only. But once you, you can copy it to somewhere else, and then it can become a full read-write database. Yeah. Other parts of the product excited. Oh. Um, one of the things that really surprised me a while ago, I, I, I discovered this well over a year ago, but when I did discover it, it was a very pleasant surprise with all of the big um, commotion about the introduction of the CLR uh, into SQL Server programmable units, CLR in the triggers and functions and stored procedures, uh, it seemed to be that some people were under the impression that the Transact SQL was going to be um, going the way of the dinosaur. You and mean it, like the people who were referring to it as CLR server instead of SQL server? Well, I think they, they had <laughs> other other points to make at that with, with that um, lame joke. But... <laughs> But if you look at what Microsoft's done with with the the language, with the SQL language, you you can it's absolutely obvious they are not neglecting it. The the changes just to the language parallel any of the changes they made to to the availability features, to the performance features. That what you can do with the language is so rich now. My partner Itzik Ben Gan, who is who is the Transact SQL um, expert. Um, has, has you wrote like a 80 to 90 page white paper on the new features. He's going to be co-writing a volume of the Inside SQL 2. I mean 2005. Um, the new book will be in multiple volumes. One of them will be all Transact SQL, and Itzik will be writing that. He has just been doing incredible things with with the changes. So I, I can't even. How large begin. is the new book? Is it? Sold by the pound or the kilo? Uh, <laughs> the, the new book it will, it will be in multiple volumes, and at this point, it's looking like 
there'll be a Transact SQL volume that I'll be working on with ITSIC that will be available at the time the product's released because the language itself is pretty stable. That's already in the works. And then shortly after release, and I, I couldn't say how many weeks, but around the release time frame will be a volume on the storage engine and the, the features of just the way that data is made available and usable, the way that data is stored. I will be talking about snapshots and the new um, isolation level in that volume, as well as, as the smaller changes to the storage engine in the, the current version. And then there will be a, a third volume on the tuning that that we will delay to to make sure that we have um, input from the field to see Best how people are yeah. actually using it and what really, really works out there. I will have my ears open for all the tips and tricks I can pull out of the news group. Hey, wait a minute, this isn't working as advertised so that I, I don't have to just write about this is what Microsoft says it's going to do, but find out what really works. So the, yeah. the performance There's some, tuning, so many changes that the, finding best practices is yeah, going to be and, so to do it in multiple volumes gives us that flexibility that we can we'll have the volume on the storage engine on the the data organization soon after release, but the the tuning will will be delayed maybe as much as six months so we can get some real good feedback there. Yes, yeah, so actually, it's a Ben Gunn uh, came and presented at a user group last right, week, right. and uh, in the session, actually, one of the things that uh, he showed. That was most interesting were new uses for the new row numbers, and uh, which seemed like a kind of minor feature, but uh, he not was showing when it's, it gets his hands some, on some them. Nice no. things you could do with it. He does things with that language that, that the developers at Microsoft did not know were possible. They finally figured it out, and every time he's presenting at a, a conference, they make sure they send someone to <laughs> to listen to what he's saying because they learn things from him. Um, some of the things they're adding are, as, as you mentioned, the, thing, the row number feature and the, the possibilities there. We have recursive queries with common table expressions. We have um, pivots and It's a and very interesting pivots. one, actually, the, the CTE, the sorry. CTE, the uh, yes. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I saw a webcast a little while ago where the person doing it referred to them almost like they were some sort of just a, a temporary table and uh, and, and I, I sort of felt like it sort of missed the point because yeah I, I thought the real richness was in things like recursive queries and so you know on. It, it's very tricky to to actually give a good presentation on on any programming topic to be able to talk about programming which is not a verbal activity it's a you it's a coding activity and to just flash code on the screen isn't really exciting to a lot of people. You want to get your hands on it, you want to try it, you want to write your own, but to listen or look at somebody else's code normally isn't one of the most exciting things, I think. Itzik is an exception there. When he talks about Transact SQL, you want to hear what he has to say about it. But a lot of these features, um, hearing about them is exciting, but still, you're really not going to appreciate them until you can really look at dozens of examples and see really the full power of what, what you're getting with this. So I, I started to mention the pivot and unpivot to turn mm -hmm. table to turn columns into rows and rows into tables and error checking, error handling within the Transact SQL language was probably one of the biggest holes in the product in the in the language up to this point and the error handling capabilities that, that we'll have in the 
in SQL 2005 are really going to make it a, a robust yeah. programming. So this is what the new uh, begin try, the try, try begin catch, yeah. try and catch, um, and you know that's something that I, I've read some of its writing, but but I haven't even written a lot of my own code mm -hmm. using these features yet. It's all I can do to just read what he's written and test out his examples, and it's on my list to to. Make it, sure it I, I get good at writing the new queries myself. I was uh, listening to uh, Kim Tripp again uh, a week or so back, and she was talking about the fact that there was uh, was a time when you could know most things about the product, but it's it's got to the point now that the product's so broad. Oh yeah, as I mentioned in six five, I thought I knew everything, and now sometimes I think I want to be. I have to focus so much when. Um, when SQL 7 came out and they had the new profiler tool, mm -hmm. I thought, I could just focus on that. I could just spend my whole life, all my professional time, working with the profiler and, and its depths and coming up with the, the best trace definitions for exactly what, what I need to figure out. It's, it's just so big, you've got to, to pick and choose areas of interest. But speaking of profiler, actually, there are a couple of changes there that I want to mention in my, my top ten list. That the this the um, the graphical interface for profiler to to set up the events and the data that you want is now much much cleaner and much more intuitive. It's just this big um, matrix now with the events along one side and the data columns along the other side. So rows of events, data columns along the top, and you just click the intersection where they meet. I want this data for this event or that data for another event, and you don't have to remember which data goes with which events. If the data is not meaningful for a particular event, there's no box there to, mm -hmm. to click. The, the trace engine behind the profiler has been enhanced in that you now can grant permission to somebody to run a trace. It was a big hole in the product in SQL 2000 that only administrators could define traces. Yeah. Really, so this is with the new alter trace. Really crippled a lot of people, um, but but a lot of new permissions. That's in this list of all the new security enhancements. So many more possibilities of what specific permissions you want to grant. You can grant someone permission to create trace and alter trace. Mm -hmm. So this this will be a really good thing for troubleshooting. So any others in your uh, top ten? Oh, well, how much time do we have here? Uh, <laughs> Getting towards time. Yes, in still in the, the profiler, when you, well, actually not in the profiler per se, in the tracing that you can do, if you capture the show plan for a, a statement or a batch, you can capture it as a, an XML string. And then um, this is something that I'd actually requested way back in 7.0 when the first really nice show plan GUIs came out. Mm. And this was like so wonderful to see your plan in this nice graphical execution environment, uh, or nice graphical environment showing you what your plan looked like. I thought, well, this would be great to be able to pass this to somebody else. But the only thing that was passable was your text-based plan. I could email you the text output. I couldn't email you the graphical output. I could take a screenshot, but it wouldn't show all the details. I highlight just one icon, and that's all that would be in my in my screenshot. And I said, well, 
since you can actually, it's obvious you can build this graphical display from the information about the plan, why can't you build a little um, interface that I could submit the, the text-based output and then you just regenerate this graphical output. And everybody I talked to back in, in 7.0 beta said, oh, that sounds like a great idea. We'll take a look at it. Well, they never did anything with it, obviously. And then in 2000, I started mentioning it again. I want to be able to take my text output of my plan and generate a graphical output so I can email it to someone, so I can store it in an efficient form and share it with other people. Didn't happen. Turned out what they were waiting for was XML. And in SQL 2005, you can save your plan as XML. An XML plan now can be redisplayed graphically, whether or not you even have the database available. So this will be a really, really nice way to do to do um, shared shared troubleshooting to be able to collaborate with others, look all looking at the all same plan. All pass information back to Microsoft. To pass information to Microsoft to collaborate with coworkers or or remote. Um, a remote support sites, it's it's going to be a nice thing. The new deadlock graph? And the um, deadlock graph also. Um, you get graphical displays and profiler of your execution plan, of your deadlock. Also, profiler is integrated with performance monitor. So if you have a, per, a performance monitor log that spans the same time period as your trace, you can actually display the log in its own graphical format as a, prof as a performance monitor chart. And it will show you, as you click on an event, it will then show you where in the performance monitor graph that event occurred. So you can see what else happened at the time that event ran slowly. How much I.O. was the system using? How much CPU was it using for other purposes? Whatever you've chosen to monitor in your performance monitor log, you can see what was happening. And, and in many cases, this will give you a big clue as to, oh, well, that's why this query ran slow, because there was so much I.O. going on for some other person's processes not at all related to mine. That's great. Well, look, lots of things to look forward lots to in the lots. product, and uh, hopefully we'll see it fairly soon. Uh, so we'll be able to actually start working with the real product uh, in the upcoming days. I gather from discussions, I've been telling people all over the country that you're coming down to see us in Australia fairly soon. So so what's what's on the agenda oh, for this, this is really exciting for me. My first trip um, to Australia will be in July. I will be coming down to um, for two weeks. Um, I will be teaching um, a class in Melbourne for sure. Um, on what topic? Um, I have a class that I've been teaching all over the world on SQL Server internals and query tuning. Um, it is a SQL 2000 based course, but a lot of the the topics I will be able to to mention the, the major changes during the course. And it's not officially a 2005 course, but some of the biggest changes will be brought up during the week. It's a four-day course that will run July um, 12th through 15th in Melbourne. Uh, I will be there a second week. I may be teaching a second week of the course, or I may be doing some one-day seminars. Um, like like Itzik Ben Gon did when he was there in um, this month, and that uh, that's not yet decided. But you can check the Solid Quality Learning website. We have a, an Australian website, solidqualitylearning.com.au, or just the the U.S. based site. Go to our, our schedule of activities, and and the classes can be found there. That's 
great. And writing and publications, obviously the new book coming. Um, right books. now, the, the <laughs> books, um, the one that, that's currently in the works is the Transact SQL book, but I'm also writing a white paper right now on concurrency enhancements that will c- include the internals of the way the new snapshot isolation works, as well as the way that the row-level versioning gets applied to, to triggers and online index rebuilds. Um, that will, will form part of the basis of the, the, the next volume, the storage engine volume of the book, um, so that's that's definitely in the, the planning and the beginning. So you've enjoyed of obviously being involved in the beta programs or beta programs. It's, that, it's uh, great to see what's coming. Yes. Uh, avoid the thing. I was talking to somebody about it just the other day. Actually, I said one of the things I like most about it is it avoids me having to learn all the things about the new product come the day it's released. At, at least you, you get have a to little bit of head little, start, and yep. you learn a little bit each day yep. rather than. Every time you, you learn about one thing, or this is what I do, every time I want to see how one feature works, I'll, I'll look at a couple of related features. Sometimes I can't help myself. It's like, oh, wait a minute, then there's also this related to that, and, and follow a few links from, from the documentation and make sure that, that I, I try to discover a couple of new things every time I, I well, use it. I, I know lots of people use your book as, as their reference for finding out how things work in the product. Where do you most look to, to find out? <laughs> well, well, this, this is interesting. It's going to be different, I think, in, in SQL 2005. I do have connections on the development team at Microsoft, obviously. Um, I live within driving distance a couple of hours away from the main Microsoft campus, so I do spend some time there when I'm heavily into writing. I'm, I'm on campus at least one day a week meeting with engineers, sometimes more often than that. Um, in older versions, 2000 and before, a lot of what I learned, I learned just by playing around with the underlying metadata. So this is going to be a challenge in the new version because the underlying metadata is not quite so easily accessible or not quite so um, meaningful even when you can get to it. Um, it it's going to be challenging, but mm. by this point I do. I think I've got enough contacts on the, mm. on the dev team that, that my questions can be answered. And there's also enough metadata available that I can, I can run a lot of tests on my own just to see yeah. the way In, in fact, work. I think the dynamic management views will be learning oh, for They're going to be a tool time. for me and you mm. and mm. anybody who wants to know more about the product. It's, it's just, mm. just a way for you to see what SQL Server is really doing. Well, thank you very much, Kaylin. We've sort of run out of time, but uh, we so look forward to seeing you when you come. Well, I'm really looking forward to it, and it was great to talk with you today, Greg. Thank you. Thank you.